We turn to 1 Peter, um, we're in chapter 3, and we're reading from verse 13 to 22. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is God's word. Our Father God, we behold you and we see you are great and wonderful and majestic. And you left the glory of heaven to endure the pain of the cross for us. So Father, as we come to think now about, um, we may endure some little mockery in this world. Would you give us the strength, the courage, the encouragement, the hope to bear witness to who you are in your splendor, in your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, times change. The first time I went overseas, uh, abroad, I was 12. Um, but uh, and the first time I went to Waiwai was uh, it was a school day trip to France, and this was wildly exciting. We got up at five o'clock or something crazy, uh, and got the ferry across uh, just for the day. We didn't go too far into France, but this, to my mind, was the most exciting thing ever. We got up, we're on a coach with a bunch of friends from school, and the ferry. Well, to my mind, that was extraordinary. There were things like fruit machines, which ate my money. There were French bonbons, uh, which I'd never seen before. We're going back a few years ago. There was this extraordinary chocolate called Toblerone. It was triangular. And because it was triangular, I'd happily spend £10 on a piece of chocolate because they didn't have such a thing in the shops at home. Uh, and so, whatever the ferry is, 90 minutes, uh, it was, uh, uh, was me and one or two of my friends. I wasn't the only one who'd been shut away uh, all my life. Um, for the number, this was the first time they'd been overseas. Uh, and so the ferry was just so exciting and uh, I spent every bit of money I'd been given on the ferry and got to France at a very boring time. No food, so if I was hungry, because we were meant to buy, you know, a bit of French boulangerie, we were meant to go and have that experience. Couldn't do that. Um, couldn't buy any souvenirs. And the whole thing was slightly ruined by the fact that I was hungry. And this was quite interesting, but I'd blown everything on the ferry. Now, that's a daft way of doing any sort of holiday, obviously. Why do I tell you that? The, um, the book of 1 Peter really says that Christians are passing through this world. And we mustn't get overexcited by the ferry when we have a destination to go to. 
Don't get excited and invest everything and spend everything here and now. For goodness sake, this is nothing. Relatively speaking, it's a load of bright flashing lights and Toblerone compared to where we're going. We're passing through this phrase that um, Chris introduced. We're aliens and strangers in this world. So we don't live for this world. We live now for eternity. Increasingly, I'm persuaded that is a good slogan or logo to have as a church. We live now, and we live, we enjoy it, but we live now with eternity in view. That's how and why we live. And the Christian faith makes absolutely no sense without the hope of heaven. That Jesus will return and take those, or resurrect those who have trusted in him, and take them to be with him in glory. And it is wonderful. And without that hope, it makes no sense. And even non-Christians get that. Philip Collins was uh, Tony Blair's uh, sp- uh, speechwriter for a number of years. Uh, he's now um, a commentator in the Times newspaper. On the 26th of December, this year, Boxing Day, he, uh, why was I reading the newspaper? There's nothing in the newspaper then, I know. Um, but he wrote an article. He'd watched the Archbishop of Canterbury's speech uh, that he'd given his sermon uh, on Christmas Day. And as a non-Christian, the, the headline of his article was, Christianity needs distinctive doctrines. Which is a fairly unusual headline in a national newspaper. Uh, his point being, I watched the Archbishop of Canterbury's speech, and he seems like a very nice man, but he said that poverty is evil. And I said, yeah. That wealth inequality has got too great. But I said, yeah. And he said a whole number of things that I, as a secular humanist, could agree with. And so I thought to myself, what is the point of your religion? Now, you can debate about what is wise or unwise for an archbishop to stand up and say in the public arena. But if a thinking non-Christian humanist says, well, I just believe the same as you, what is the point? You have nothing different to offer me. What is the point of Christianity? Something's gone wrong at that point. I think you've got to agree. Whereas, if nothing else, we have to say, in this passage, chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Which is distinctive about the Christian faith. A hope of eternity with Jesus Christ. That is different. makes no sense without that hope. So that's the central, really, command of this passage. Uh, always be prepared to um, give an answer or a reason for the hope that you have. And the problem with that is, well, always be prepared. But we'd kind of pre- prefer it if others did that work and gave the reasons. Or Jesus will say, go and make disciples of all nations. And we think, that's probably someone else's job, isn't it? And not mine. Or go and be fishers of men. And we think, can that be a spectator sport? I know it's not very interesting fishing, but can I just sit and watch that? Whereas here, Peter addressing Christians says, be prepared. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have. And as we see, the reason we don't do that, and the reason 
we'll sometimes fail to tell people of the hope we have in Jesus Christ is because we fear them. And those two are inexplicably you know, intertwined. I don't mean that, do I? Um, they're intertwined. As Jesus puts it in Matthew 10, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't be afraid of what someone may think, what someone may do. Trust the Lord. Fear him. This passage that it begins, uh, you get a rhetorical question in verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Um, and um, throughout the letter of 1 Peter, Christians are encouraged to do good. Be good. Be good citizens. Be good husbands. Be good workers. Be good wives. Um, be good. Just do good. I mean, you should just go about doing good. That's an essential thing to do. But who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good, he asks rhetorically. But the reality bites in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. You may well do the right thing and suffer for that, he says. And we started to think a bit about that yesterday, didn't we, uh, with Chris. UK, of course, it's, it's largely going to be social harm at the moment. Not much more than that. It's not North Korea. We're not going to be put in a prison camp uh, for believing we're Christians. We need to keep things in perspective. But there may be social harm. I was thinking about this uh, the other night. I think 10 years ago, maybe, you say, oh, I'm a Christian and here's what I believe. People broadly might say, that's nice. It's nice you've got your faith. Uh, this is a subtle shift. Now, there's a bit more, yeah, I'm a Christian, here's what I believe. And um, I find increasingly, forgive me for this, it's a bit like I've passed wind. You know, people don't often say much, but they just sort of, mm, I don't really like that. And so they just... <laughs> drift away. No one says anything. No one wants to be rude and point the finger and say that's not very nice, is it? But they just sort of drift away a little bit um, because they don't like it very much. It's still quite rare you get someone demonstratively say, you believe that, you're an idiot, religion is evil. I mean, there are one or two, but that is quite rare. It's more the, "Mm, don't like that too much. And they politely shuffle away. Increasingly so, I guess. But Peter is writing here to Christians who are fearful that there's going to be some form of suffering or loss involved in being publicly known as a Christian. And as we said yesterday, that is timelessly relevant, and perhaps increasingly so in the 21st century. Two things then, let's break it to two two things, I'm a major one. Set apart Christ as Lord... And then speak with gentleness and fear. Okay, uh, there's the two things. First then, set apart Christ as Lord, verse 15. Let me read it again. Pick it up from verse 14. Uh, Even if you suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Here we go. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But, by contrast, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. So to set apart Christ as Lord is to not fear what the world around fears. Before we even open our mouths or say anything, we need to resolve in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. We need to be clear on that. So don't fear what they fear. 
But different translations actually do translate differently. Some go for, don't fear the fear of them, which you could equally translate it. But to my mind, I think Peter is quoting uh, or referring to that little extract from Isaiah 8 that's there in the book. In Isaiah 8, Isaiah's there in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's about to get invaded by uh, the Assyrians, modern-day Kurds. Uh, that sort of region of the world. Uh, they're about to be invaded by the Assyrians. And everyone's terrified. We're about to be invaded. We're about to have our homes ransacked and destroyed. The Lord says to Isaiah, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. And do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Don't fear what they fear. I think I'm safe. I'm working the assumption that not many of your friends, colleagues, family are fearful of being invaded by Kurds. That's not the issue. But it is worth thinking, what are our friends, colleagues, family? What are they? What do they fear? Do I think about afterwards? What do they fear? Eventually, still, everyone fears death. Comes at some point. This is the, the, the great universal one. It's not presenting, particularly if you're young. And we, you know, if you live in a, a young city, London is overwhelmingly young. You can get insulated by death. Grandparents live on the other side of the world, on the other side of the country. You don't see them deteriorate and die. You can be insulated from, you know, how unpleasant death is sometimes. But it confronts you at some point. But do not fear what they fear. I mean, I don't know what the fears of your friends, colleagues, family are. Uh, the more common ones um, uh, you see day-to-day, unemployment at a certain age and stage, kids not getting into the right schools, <laughs> loneliness, big fear in London. And Peter is suggesting we will live differently because we have hope, hope in a God who loves you, Hope in a God who will take you to be with him in future glory. So we're just on a ferry ride for 90 minutes. It's all right if it's a rubbish one and if you don't win anything on the fruit machines, it's fine. Because you're going to France. (laughs) So I think really in verse 15, setting apart Jesus as Lord essentially is have hope in him. Have your hope fixed upon him and his return. Because if your hope is there in the future, you don't fear now in the present. If your hope is fixed upon Jesus, then you can be brave and bold now. Whereas if your hopes are fixed upon something in this world, you'll be very nervous that you can lose it. Remember yesterday, God is keeping your inheritance in heaven for you if you're a Christian. You cannot lose it. Brilliant. Who cares? If I inherit 10 million pounds tomorrow, who cares what happens to my money today? You can be brave here and now. Whereas if your hope is in your reputation in this world, then your fear speaking out publicly, your fear that people will think you backward. I thought you were bright, but now you're a Christian. Um, if you fear, if sorry, if your hope is in, if they do that, they're a bit odd, aren't they? If your hope... <laughs> If your hope is in the promotion you might get, you'll certainly fear what your boss thinks. 
I can't be known as a Christian. Everyone assumes Christians are weak, feeble. I can't be known as one of those. So I must just, you know, separate my life, keep that secret. If your hope is in any of them, status, career, reputation, then you'll be very slow and fearful to speak of Jesus. Uh, this chapter comes along on a Tuesday lunchtime to uh, midweek in Mayfair, uh, the service we have on a Tuesday. Um, a few years ago, he uh, joined a bank in the area, it's a private banking, and uh, for one year, he was on one week's notice, um, which is you know, not the way you want to live. Uh, he's about 50, got two kids, family, mortgage, etc. You know, so you don't want to be living quite on one week's notice at that age and stage, and um, he reckons in that year, that two or three times, he was a day away from uh, getting the sack because his numbers just weren't good enough that quarter. And he said about two or three times, just enough sneaked in. Just something was brokered that day or the promise of it that they gave him a bit more leeway and they gave him uh, enough time. Now, there's another Christian in his firm who has told me, I've not got this from the guy himself. He said it was very striking watching Peter uh, in that year because he worked hard. Yeah, he, he did long hours. But every now and again, some people, someone would say to him, golly, how are you feeling? You know, uh, uh, you know, we know it's a slightly stressful contract you're on at the moment. It's just fine. It's fine. If this doesn't work, God's got something better for me. So it's no problem. And if I lose this job, something else will turn up. God will provide for me and my family. And they're looking on going, but golly, you know, you've got, you know, house, mortgage, kids, they're in certain schools, fees, you'd have to move them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, what's the worst that can happen? The kids move school? I mean, you know, so what? Now, a couple of years on, he's fine. He's got happy revenue streams. But, but still, his colleagues remember that. And I recommend, he brings people along to that service most weeks, non-Christian colleagues, clients, because they saw him in that year. And they, they saw, you just live differently. We don't get it. Can you explain the reason you're able to live differently to the rest of us? Essentially, they're saying, can you give me a reason for the hope that you have. It's really striking. And he has wonderful conversations with many about Christ. Now you could look upon him and say, well, he's a bit heroic, isn't he? Uh, you know, he's just one of those really brave sort of heroic Christians. Or you could say, he's just got hope in heaven. That's all it is. He just trusts Jesus. We can all do that in different ways. So do you see, no one's going to ask us no one's going to say to us, hey, you live differently. Why, you hope in different things, don't you? No one's going to ask us that unless we do. It's fairly obvious. Unless we do set apart Christ as Lord. In our conversations, you know, when you're out for dinner, I don't know all the things you drift about. In it, you get to a certain age and stage, and it's very easy to have boring conversations when you have dinner with people. You're in sort of 40s, you know. House prices, holidays, children's education. You can have a number of evenings where you just talk about those three things, and it's pretty boring, actually. Um, but to have a distinctive or different attitude to those three, people will notice it when you're 40. I wonder what it is, different ages and stages. It is different. But to have your hope 
Not here, where you can lose it, but there, where you can't. People notice that if you live that way. So before you say anything, says Peter, you've got to set apart Christ as Lord. Don't fear what they fear. Don't fear, oh, I might not get into the right school. Oh, I might lose my job. Oh, don't, don't, I mean, once, of course, it's, it's always very normal to be upset by those things. But don't panic. Trust. Don't fear what they fear. Have your hope where it cannot be taken in heaven. So don't fear what they fear. And then after that, be ready to explain your hope. We're still in verse 15. Be ready. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So the question you long for, I guess, if you're a Christian is, you live differently. Why? But then what do you say? Church. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, to be honest, if someone ever asks you, you live differently, why? I mean, that's wonderful. Uh, but then what are you going to say, says Peter? You need to be prepared for that. Can you explain the basic Christian faith? Can you explain the gospel to someone in 60 seconds? I mean, we should be able to do something, have a go. What about just getting Christ onto the, you know, pushing things a little bit more? You know, it's brilliant having something like uh, uh, Tristan do an apologetic seminar, really helpful. Okay, people are talking about this, and let me offer a Christian perspective on it. Oh, as a Christian, I think differently in regard to whatever, taxation, immigration, because I, you know, oh, okay. To have a sort of Christian mind. That's a bit more sophisticated, but the most basic level, can you explain the Christian faith in 60 seconds to someone? Essentially, or, or fundamentally in 1 Peter, the reason for the Christian hope, we started to see this yesterday, is the resurrection. So hope is tied to resurrection. We saw it yesterday in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 22. So I, I guess as Christians, we should be able to offer some reasonable defense if someone says, a man died and rose from the dead. That's madness. Um, you should be able to offer, no one speaks like that, I know. <laughs> Um, be able to offer some basic reasonable defense for that. Not purely an intellectual defense, although you need to have some stats, I think, or some facts and figures are always useful. Good to read a good book on that, evidence for the resurrection, that sort of thing. But um, I remember a couple of years ago hearing Michael Green, who's an evangelist, telling a story of uh, he'd been involved in a student mission at Oxford University. And um, uh, one evening, uh, he was sat next to a lecturer. She was not a Christian uh, in her 50s. And uh, she was listening to these various people standing up and um, giving their testimonies before someone came on to speak. You know, there was three or four people saying, I'm a Christian because, uh, and the difference it makes to me is this. Uh, And the lecturer turned to Michael Green and said, I don't believe any of this. I don't believe any of it's true. But quite shrewdly, he turned to her and said, but you want it to be true, don't you? And she just started crying and said, yes. But everyone's different. But within all of us is the knowledge that we are eternal beings made for relationship with God. Some people are very good at suppressing that. But in everyone, it bubbles up sometimes. And just remind them, yeah, of course, you want there to be a heaven. 
because that's how we're made. But you've got to be ready in some form to explain your hope. We think about that after coffee. So set apart Christ as Lord. It's a fundamental attitude uh, as much as anything else. Then secondly, secondly, speak with gentleness and fear. Verse 16. How are we ready to do this? Uh, pick it up, uh, verse 15 again. Uh, be prepared to give a reason for the, everyone who asks you to give the reason for your hope that you have. But, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be shamed of their slander. Now, um, end of verse 15. Do this with gentleness and respect. The word is actually fear, phobia, where we get the word Phobia from uh, in Greek. It's the same word as verse 14. Do not phobia what they phobia. End of verse 15. Do this with gentleness and phobia. I don't know why it gets translated differently. It's fear is what's being spoken of. So I think in that context, in this context here, it means fear for the Lord. So Peter is saying you've got to hold these two things together. Gentleness in speech, a humility when you're speaking to someone who, who wouldn't call themselves a Christian. Don't ever be rude for goodness sake don't demand that they believe you know listen to them understand where they're coming from you know be be human with them uh gentleness but at the same time fear of the lord and you need to have both because if you're just concerned with being nice well, you, you may not give them the truth. If you're just concerned with fear for the Lord, you may give them a f- two barrels full of truth in a way which is pretty obnoxious. But you need both, and to hold both together. Uh, I guess often we can be more concerned about upsetting someone's feelings than we are about God's feelings on the matter. And he wants us to speak the truth. And I think that's what it means here, to keep a clear conscience beginning of verse 16. I think, you look at how it's used elsewhere, that means give them the truth. Let me be blunt. We do need to remember that people's eternal souls are at stake. And it is binary. People either face the wonders and delights of being with Christ in glory or the horrors of hell. And that is a binary destination set. I don't know if you've heard this. John Blanchard tells um, a shocking account. On the 12th of December, a number of years, a few years ago, uh, uh, fog descended badly on the M25 near Godstone in Surrey. Um, and you know, really bad fog. And so the dot matrices come up, fog, drive slowly, and everyone completely ignores them, uh, particularly it was earliest in the morning. But at 6.15, uh, a lorry skidded and rolled onto its side. A uh, big lorry carrying vast rolls of paper uh, to deliver. Uh, and so this thing went up uh, in flames. And very quickly, of course, a number of cars smashed into this lorry that was blocking the whole of the carriageway. By all accounts, um, the first police car was there within two minutes, which is very impressive at 6.15 in the morning. But the fog was so bad. What do you do? So the police you know, try and block off one of the carriageways, and they put up their hazard triangles. But visibility was very poor. And so you can read the account of one of the policemen who was there that day, who said, we, 
people were just ignoring us. So my colleague and I, we started to, we were standing in the carriageway, jumping up and down, trying to get people to stop. But they're just going past. And we know and we can hear that the crash is getting bigger and bigger. And it got to the stage where we just started crying and we picked up traffic cones and were throwing them at the windscreen of the car, saying, will you do something? Will you pay attention? This is not normal behavior for a policeman to throw these things at you. Will you stop? And he said with tears coming down, but all I could hear was the sickening crash of another car joining the carnage several hundred yards behind me. And of course, you know, dozens of cars were involved. A number of people died that day. But we know, as Christians, that many dozens that we love, that we know, work with, colleagues, friends, are heading towards the sickening reality of hell. And they're not paying attention to the warnings that are going on, the superficially around them. And I guess the issue is, what are we going to do? And the answer can't be nothing. What are we going to do? I guess for me the question is, um, what do I do with my father? Now, my dad is not a Christian, and he's 80 years old, and I know when I try to speak to him, he gets upset and annoyed, he'll just walk away, he'll get up from the dinner table, I'll say, Dad, we need to talk about what happens when you die, so no, we don't, you and I don't have that conversation. Now, what do I do with him? Now, when I meet up with him, I know I can either bring up the issue of eternity and it causes friction, and he's annoyed, and we don't have a happy family day. Or I can speak to him. And so the issue for me there is, do I love my dad more than I love my comfort? Because love, love which is stripped of the truth, isn't really love. It's apathy or deceit. And if I love him, I've got to warn him. Yet the gospel is not, hey, we're all okay and Jesus is nice and he'll help you be a bit nicer. The gospel is not, we can make this world a better place if we all just work together. Well, there's some truth in that. The gospel is Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He died for our sins. He rose again for resurrection. He can save us from heaven for hell forever. And that's what people need to know. And for me, I can only have a clear conscience in regard to my father if I tell him and warn him. And I find the, the, the motorway thing helpful. What, what does it mean for me to pick up a traffic cone and throw it at my father's face. <laughs> I won't do that literally. Well, that might gain his attention. We need to give them the plain truth. And look, we may suffer for doing good, says Peter. You just need to be aware of that. Um, 
I mean, you've got to do good in your workplace. You need to make sure your behavior is beyond reproach. In your friendship groups, similarly, don't speak about people behind their backs, etc., etc. But you'll still suffer for doing good at times, says Peter. But Jesus never apologizes for that. You know? He says, follow me. And my life was not straightforward. And I suffered for doing good. And I say to my followers, it looked like that sometimes. Follow me. How do you do that? How do you do that when there is a cost? You have to hope in something more. You have to know that Jesus wins. Briefly. Uh, verses 18 to 22. Um, uh, I'm not expounding them. It's a complicated passage. You can, we've done that before. It's online if you want to know uh, and listen to that more carefully. Essentially, the point is those little flow diagrams, to keep it simple, of that little section. Jesus died. He was made alive. He ascended to heaven. He reigns. That's it. He wins. That's the point of what it's saying. Um, so verse 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Four, verse 18, Jesus wins. If you want to summarize that whole section, stick with him. And that does keep us going. <laughs> uh, it gets you beyond your fears. The, my inheritance is safe in heaven because Jesus wins. So I don't need to fear now because I'm secure then. And Jesus wins. Now, the timing is left to him. We don't know the timing of when he returns. We don't know the timing of whether this is a season in the West where... It is going to get much harder for Christians, or next year we bounce and God gives us revival. Who knows? We don't know that. Anyone tells you they know, tell them to be quiet. They don't know. But we trust him for his timing. Do you hear the story of Luke Short? I only read this fairly recently. I quite like this one. You heard of him. Uh, Luke Short was a, a, a New England farmer, 19th century, who lived to age 100, which is good old age uh, in those days. By all accounts, on his 100th birthday, he sat down on a in a field in New England and reflected upon his long life. And one of the things that he came to him very vividly that day was when he was a 15-year-old boy living in Dartmouth in England, a few months before he sailed to the New World, he heard a sermon, a man called John Flavel, preached to him about the horrors of hell and how awful it would be to die under the curse of God. And he sat there on his 100th birthday and thought, oh, I remember that funny sermon. And he thought about it and he became a Christian there and then. And you, you can read his testimony because he was a, he was a slave trader who you know gave that up and things. The um, uh, he said, "I'm not sure I'd heard anything since, but for some reason at that point, God brought to my memory a sermon I'd heard 85 years earlier. That's a long time. That is so encouraging for me." You know, you preach your heart out sometimes, particularly at things like guest events or weddings, and you share the gospel, and they say, that was nice. And you think, no, oh, golly. <laughs> and now I can think to myself, yeah, but in 85 years' time, you'll remember it. <laughs> well, the timing is God's. You give, you give that to him. I, uh, I read in uh, um, 
what was it, uh, OM thing, uh, a report the other day of a missionary in uh, Central Asia, generally what they call Afghanistan, but they don't like to say that publicly, uh, but a missionary who's working in Afghanistan who said, that the, 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 uh, the heading over the article was, I've discovered the silver bullet to Muslim evangelism. And you think, oh, golly, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I've discovered the silver bullet, me and my team, of uh, how you see Muslims converted. Wow. And you read the article, and the silver bullet is this. Prolonged exposure to the Bible over years, maybe decades, and prolonged exposure to Christians. That's the silver bullet. (laughs) Just quite a slow-moving bullet, (laughs) that one. His point being sometimes, it just takes a long time. But don't give up. Don't give up. Exposure to God's word, exposure to God's people makes a difference over time. Oh, you know, for us, uh, uh, one of our neighbours came to um, guest dinner last year. We've been trying to get him along to one for five years. And finally last year, he said, oh, that sounds quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can do. Look, four Ps, then we're done. We'll pick these up at the next session. Uh, four Ps uh, to take away, four little practical things. One, pray. Pray, 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 pray. Pray for yourself, that you pray for ourselves, that we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. He's wonderful. He's the one who took the nail in our hands. We can trust him. Our inheritance is safe. Pray that he would grow our confidence in him and pray for those who don't know him. Pray. Two, put Christ on the table. That is, in your sports club, in your workplace, wherever it is, be known as a Christian. In one sense, this is quite an easy weekend. You go back to work on Monday. What did you do this weekend? I stayed in a nice hotel. <laughs> or I thought about the difference it makes being a Christian and the hope you have for eternity. <laughs> or somewhere in between, probably. Somewhere in between, uh, I guess. But to be known as a Christian, to put Christ upon the table, it's got to start there. Three, prepare an answer. Think about that after coffee. Four, persevere. Persevere in loving people, in sharing, in believing that the Lord has power to save in his timing. Persevere. But let's pray. Our great God and Father, we need you. We need you to change us. We need you to deepen our trust, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is wonderful, that our friends, colleagues, family, they need him. Heaven and hell are real. And he is the wonderful saviour who has taken the nails upon his hands, who has taken the wrath of God upon himself in order that we might be forgiven and know the glories of heaven rather than the horrors of hell. Would you persuade us of these truths and give us a clear hope in Jesus, a hope that is stronger than our fear of man? We ask it so we may have the great joy of seeing those we know come to Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.